you are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit Win, Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global marketing lead at Win by night and product manager and university level faculty by day. It seems that Lisa Gralnick has held every job you can imagine in the span of her 20-plus year career, and that is because innovation, to her, is defined by its role in the company and not a specific title or designation. By trade, Lisa is a brand builder and strategist and has worked on creating growth for leading CPG, retail, tech, design brands, and nonprofits. After spending her time in some of the most well-known companies in the world, such as Chobani, Adidas, as well as up-and-coming startups such as Moo, she has taken her fate into her own hands and started LVG & Co., her own consultancy. In addition to advising companies large and small and helping them establish where they want to be and get there, Lisa also hosts the series Future of XYZ, which engages innovative other leaders to foster forward-thinking discussions about where we are and where we want to go on a range of topics. Personally, I've always wondered about the balance between living in the present and what it means to consistently be thinking about what is next. My conversation with Lisa reminds me that it is possible to embrace and make the most of whatever it is that you're doing, but to always look ahead to keep things moving forward and progressing. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you today. How are you? I'm doing so well, Zoya. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. Well, when we connected, your story particularly stood out to me for many reasons, but because it is truly an aggregate of the many aspects of innovation, you have background in brand and business, future practices, working with big and small brands alike. So prior to starting more of your traditional consulting and innovation journey way back in the day at BCG, you were actually a producer and then a talent agent in the fashion and editorial space. So how did you approach your career then, and how were you able to make the switch into more traditional business strategy? It's a great question. I'm so excited to be on this uh, podcast speaking to women in innovation. Um, I think innovation is such a wonderful catch-all topic um, that really speaks to my favorite topic, which is you know where we are and where we want to go. So my own career has been probably the weirdest guinea pig example of where I am and where I want to go, which, you know, I joke to people always, I'm extraordinarily good at setting strategies for others and helping execute and really never done that quite systematically for myself. It's been much more fueled by intellectual curiosity and and a little bit opportunity. So for instance, I started my career in fashion, as you said, um, back in the late 90s. And on this tiny little campus in rural Maine, people thought of me as very well-dressed, which wasn't a huge you know, compliment, but it gave me a confidence. And I was really curious about how marketers and brands sold an aspiration to us. And in the fashion space, it was editorial and marketers who sold this aspiration. And that's how I ended up going and saying, I want to do fashion and let's see what this looks like. And in the course of an you know, almost eight-year career in that space, as, a, as you mentioned, a producer and a talent agent and an art buyer and a photo editor, I, you know, I saw kind of all angles and I also saw a change in 
fashion from something that was kind of pure creative, although it was, of course, always commercial, to something that was much more celebrity driven, media driven. Um, and I felt that the specialness and the art and the craft was um, no longer as close to me as I wanted. And so I wanted, I was thinking, where do I want to go? And I wanted to go brand side. And I wanted to specifically go brand side with what was not known as social impact at the time, but was sustainability. And that was not a term either. And I decided to get an MBA because I didn't know any better. And, um, and everything should have been on the trajectory, except that I graduated in 2008 when the world was on fire the last time. And um, sustainability and luxury was not a conversation that was being had. And I couldn't get my foot anywhere in the door. And my personal life was also collapsing simultaneously. And I ended up, you know, with $156,000 of capitalized debt for a 10-month program and no real options that felt good. And I wanted, I was thinking, you know, innovatively (laughs) to talk about this from where I had been to where I wanted to go, which was really about having impact. And I ended up very fortunately having someone who referred me into a unique role at BCG and BCG hired me quite quickly uh, because I was otherwise scheduled to go to the Middle East for a job I didn't really want to take. And um, uh, the rest is kind of not history, but it was a great experience in, in learning what big companies tackle, their challenges ahead of them, and how to think strategically at a macro level about what those big issues are. Yeah, well, it's funny that you bring up the world collapsing because as somebody who graduated this year for my master's program, I was facing those exact same changes. But as you brought up, it really does make you innovate in your own career and in your own life instead of thinking, how can I innovate for maybe these other companies or these (laughs) other products, right? So some really interesting parallels. And something really interesting that I also think is a theme in your career is this notion of marketing. And oftentimes when you talk about innovation, marketing is separated into a whole different um, area and is not even considered, quote unquote, an innovation role. So what do you believe is defined as innovation as it pertains to brand and marketing? And how has that evolved as you worked in different industries and companies from Chobani to Moo to Adidas? Absolutely. It's such a great question. And it's one I think about almost daily. And I think about it almost daily because I do not, for instance, on my for my current consultancy, I do not say innovation is one of our offers specifically. And I don't because of this definition that you are asking about. So innovation to me is really separated only as a function in an organization, right? I think it's like the verb (laughs) to innovate is something that all functions and all employees need to be doing is to innovate, the, the verb. The kind of adjective that describes a division within an organization, which could be R&D, like in food, it could be packaging, uh, in technology, it's product, in, you know, marketing, it's digital technologies. You know, there are different ways that the function is, is, you know, modified by innovation, 
And that is its own thing. So every one of those companies that you named where I have been, Adidas, you know, had innovation and I was in charge of, even though it wasn't in my title, a major change change management initiative that was about changing the entire product development calendar, which included go to market for 30 markets and licensing and everything else. But we basically went from an 18-month calendar to a 10-month production calendar, which you can appreciate with two drops per season instead of one. It is a radical change. It is an innovation. I had innovation nowhere in my title. I had strategy to start with and then director of product marketing operations. It was an operational role that touched product and marketing. But you were deep in supply chain. And in order to get that innovation piece that was the change management, you needed to build a cross-functional togetherness. The innovation, quote unquote, was happening from the materials team, right? The trend team, like it was completely isolated, but of course it wasn't. And the same could be said at Moo, product was doing innovation, which was dealing with packaging and and, and new product development and new material sourcing and all the rest of it. Whereas in fact, the entire company was innovative, right? It broke what was tradition. And the same is also, obviously, Chobani is known as one of the world's most innovative companies. I mean, they created yogurt. I mean, yogurt's been around for thousands upon thousands of years. There isn't any innovation per se in the product, except in the new formulations, the new flavors, the new you know packaging, the new um, formats, if you will. So I, I've touched innovation in each of these without ever having that title. And that would be my long-winded answer. Absolutely. And I think when innovation happens in the silo is actually when it's problematic and ineffective for it to truly change the core of a company. It needs to touch everything from communications to talent to HR. I mean, don't even get me started on inclusion and diversity, but uh, we will definitely get there. So um, something I was curious was about kind of the different things that you've taken away as you've had uh, this very rich experience. What are some practices and learnings you would say larger companies can take away from the practices of smaller companies and smaller companies can take away from the practices of larger companies? Oh, God, you 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 ask great questions. Um, <laughs> so I work, as you know, um, across the board. I work with individual artists and journalists right now and small family-run companies and startups that don't even have seed funding and nonprofits. And I work with the biggest companies in the world, truly. And I love that mix. And what I love most about it is being able to cross-pollinate the ways of thinking and doing business. And so from my perspective, the big companies get so bogged down in the number of individuals who have a say and the processes that are created in order to wrangle that talent, if you will. Not to mention, of course, you know, measuring KPIs and reporting to a board and, you know, all of the the financial and HR process that goes behind it that really gets in the way of true creativity, which in many ways is synonymous in my mind with innovative thinking. Not innovation, but innovative thinking. Big companies can learn from small companies by adopting agile principles, becoming more nimble, you know, being willing to take risks, take small, you know, chances, create the timeline, 
live and learn, I think, instead of trying to get it right on a first go and maximize. I think that's, you know, create a pipeline and figure out how that pipeline comes to reality. Small companies really can learn from big companies by like, don't just throw shit at a wall and see what can stick. Because I think small companies sometimes are scrambling so much to like, oh my God, we have to do this. And it depends on their funding mechanism as well and their leadership as every organization, that innovation profile looks like it. Be focused, you know, put some process in place, you know, put timelines. Are you introducing new products? Obviously the cycles change, but is it four times a year? Is it once a month? Is it once a week? Is it, you know, once a year? Like your business model, your industry, your financing, your resources are going to determine that, but get, get smart about it. And then when you think about the innovation mindset and some of those nimble and agile principles you mentioned, um, big companies like Google can afford these kinds of programs where they say 10 or 20% of your time you can spend innovating and thinking of new products. Obviously, not all companies. In fact, most companies can't actually afford to give their employees those kinds of opportunities. What would you say to somebody who's working at a day job, regardless of a small or a large company, and says, okay, my job doesn't have the title innovation in it. How can I innovate on a day-to-day basis or how can I systemically infuse innovation into what I do? Well, I think the last question is the right one. How do I systemically infuse innovation into everything I do? And I'd say that there are two things. The first is personal, right? That is a mindset that you have. Are you curious? right? If you're already asking that question, the likelihood is yes. And the people on this program probably already, you know, all of the the win community, we tend to be women who think differently. So I think the first thing is personal. What can I personally do to learn more, to expand my knowledge, to expand my awareness, to expand my horizons so that when I show up in boring meeting A, B, C, or crucial meeting X, Y, or Z, I have a perspective that is already outside of the norm. So I think that's a personal onus on each of us to bring innovation to the fore, even if it's not in our title. The second piece, which is more formalized, which is about uh, the professional, I think is really about identifying who in the organization or more of a where in the organization, quote unquote, innovation is perceived as living and or where it is needed. So going back to that function versus, you know, thinking, because if you are a junior marketer, for instance, or a senior marketer, it doesn't matter. But if you're a marketer and innovation lives in product. To think that you don't have a role in innovation is to let yourself down, but also to let the company down. Your innovation role, in fact, is to infuse new thinking into your team. And you can do that by partnering across the organization, by getting yourself curious, like I already talked about, but also finding allies so that you can build something, even if it's not supported necessarily top down, that you can build it bottom up. And it may be micro or it may be macro, but no one in this world right now is not looking for newness and innovation. So if you can be a fulcrum for that, I think that's how you do what you you do. You innovated in your own life and in your own career when three years ago you launched your own practice, LVG and Co. So how did you decide it was time to make the leap uh, to creating your own practice versus continuously being in-house for these amazing brands for the duration of your career? Well, the super secret secret is that 
in all of those roles that I had over the course of almost a 20-year career at that point, none of them had existed prior to my having them. They were either roles created for me or they were brand new roles. Those are the roles I go into. In business school, there was this model, and I share it all the time. When you are making a career change, think about it in three things. Geography, industry, function. And only try to change one at a time in an ideal world. Try not to change any if you can, because that's a lot simpler. But if you're changing any, try to change one. Two, tough. Three, almost impossible. Every single move almost I have made has been all three. I wouldn't highly discourage anyone from doing the same trajectory. (laughs) (laughs) But when you are going and changing your geography, your industry, and your function, and you're finding roles that don't exist, you can't apply for things online and get a callback. It doesn't happen. So you are constantly turning over rocks. I have only once in my career gone seamlessly from one role to another. I always have time in between where you are consulting or seeking. And that's what I've done. So when I left Chobani, Chobani was a pretty short run. Um, We survived three reorgs in a very short period of time. And um, when the last one came and I left with it, I just was kind of fried. You know, when you go into these roles that don't exist, I've joked, there are 10,000 ways of failing and 9,999 of them, maybe 9,997 of them have absolutely nothing to do with you. There are so many other ways, you know, people don't love change. And that's the thing about innovation that's so interesting is innovation is all about change, whether it's micro or macro changes. And yet human beings do not like change. And in organizations, it's sometimes hard to push through, even if they say they want it. So I had that experience over and over again, where sometimes very successfully, sometimes not so successfully, and sometimes very successfully, but there was no so what after? There was no bigger next thing to go on to. And if you built it and created it and run it, you're not going to just stay on in the status quo. And and so what I will say is three years ago, a little bit more, when I left Chobani, I was sitting there thinking, what am I going to do? And the logical thing would have been to get a go and get a big job with a big title at a big company. And in some days, I regret that I didn't do that. However, the desire to be a change agent again, because that's what I know, was was there on the strategy and not there on the operationalizing. It was a little bit of self-protection and fatigue, to be very candid. What you don't know when you start your own company is like you're never off the hook um, and you're innovating all the time in whatever ways, just so that you can you know compete in the world. And so I came out and started my own thing, but it was really around the premise of innovation. Like I think differently. I like to think differently. I like to challenge the status quo. I like to talk about like, you're here, but like, where do you want to go? You know, that's what I love. And I know how to help individuals and big companies figure out that pathway and operationalize it. And I thought that that was a really interesting, and and that's what I love doing. And so I thought, well, why not see if I can hang a shingle and what happens? Because I need it anyway to to get the next gig. And I said it with an intention of like, let's see where this goes. And um, here I am three years later and, and enjoying being able to have those innovative conversations on the daily. I think something that people don't talk about, though, is obviously, as you mentioned through your own trajectory and acknowledged it very rarely, um, is the fact that innovation does fail a lot. And a lot of times you see these amazing innovation consultancies hand over these beautiful decks with directions and brand guidelines and so on and so forth. And then 
you know, that just doesn't create change management within the company. Mm-hmm. Um, now that you're on the consulting side, how are you really ensuring and, and preparing these companies to actually accept that change is coming and it's here to stay? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a major question, is the question, I think. My own take on that, I call it the keep, you know, the KISS principles, keep it simple, stupid. I am fundamentally of the belief that we are all where we are today. And we're going wherever we want to go, perhaps, but we are going somewhere else. The question is about today. What resources do you have available in order to make that trajectory to tomorrow or after tomorrow? And those are human resources. Those are time resources. Those are financial resources. Those are R&D resources. Those are all the different resources. And you have to be honest about it, right? A startup that's in seed is very different than a Fortune 1, right? In terms of the resources, but maybe not because it depends on the team. It depends on the goals. And so that is my, my short answer, which is, you know, you, you just have to stay the course, I think, and, and, and figure out what the goal is and then work backwards in, in micro pieces. And, and the goal may be 10 years from now, but the real goal is one year from now. And let's start with idealize the 10, and then in the chunky pieces that you're moving backwards from, from that, what I call the, the future point X, Y, or Z, move backwards to ABC where you are today and figure out, you know, how, how you operationalize that innovation. And the second piece, of course, of getting people prepared for change besides resourcing and keeping it simple, stupid in terms of how you actually realize it right. is you need the executive champions. Um, mm-hmm. if, if you don't have leadership on the side of change, it's not possible. And and that's one of the, you know, I would say of the 10,000 ways I joke, you can fail, you know, 9,050 of them are through leadership failing to, or changing their mind or not having the political capital or whatever, because change is hard. So I I think, I think leadership buy-in is, you know, second only to resourcing and, and maybe above it. Here you are convincing these people to change their companies, telling them that they maybe haven't done things as great as they wanted to. Uh, but you are also a woman, a woman in many rooms with executives that are likely male, um, and you may be an only at that point. So how do you not only convince them of the things that you want to convince them of, but also deal with the gender disparity at the same time? I mean, the truth of the matter is, is 9,998 ways you can fail that aren't your own making, a number of them have to do with being a woman um, and asking for the change. The expectation is, is very different. I mean, and not just in the workplace, in society, the expectations on women, the way we're supposed to, you know, give and get along. And if you are hired as I am as a change agent, that is not how you're going to make change happen. And it ruffles feathers like no tomorrow. As a younger woman, I felt that I was able to get away with a lot more. And I was able to get away with a lot more because I was able to kind of like wink and smile and play my femininity in a weird way. And But I learned that because through fashion... I was way too bullish and I didn't do that. And I was told on a regular basis, you know, like it it didn't serve me. And I was offered advice from men who meant well that I should use my femininity more. And when I got to the corporate space after business school, you know, I wasn't a typical corporate. 
I, you know, I've, I've never worn pantyhose in my life and I have no intention of it if I can avoid it. You know, I was not typically corporate. I didn't know protocols. I didn't know the formalities. You know, it, it was kind of cute. But as I got older, you, you stop wanting to be seen as cute. You're like, I, I don't want to be patronized. I know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm here to do. And it started get the rub became harder. Um, and part of the reason, very, very candidly, I went out on my own is because I was really tired of working for men who either took my ideas and took credit or kept me under their thumb and, and really didn't want to see you shine. And, and, you know, that's not the only reason, but it is painful. It is a very challenging thing to overcome. And all you can do is be true to yourself and, and move forward. That is the only thing. And, and you speak up against power when you have the, the power yourself to do that. So what has it been like starting your own series? And what are some of the most interesting insights that you've gathered so far? Oh, gosh, Zoya, I love this question. Because I came up with the idea of Future of XYZ to be a podcast <laughs> back in February because I am just so innately curious about everything, right? It's why I'm constantly, why innovation is kind of core to who I am, I guess, and why I move around so much. And so I was having these conversations with these amazing people. And I was like, well, why not just record them in some way? Because it's interesting, certainly to me, and who cares about like if it's anyone else, right? Who cares, right? <laughs> but I was dissuaded. So I give you huge props for doing this because I was dissuaded from doing a podcast for a number of reasons. And that's where the idea resurfaced to have Future of XYZ, which is really about the mathematical possibility of XYZ anything and that destination point that I keep talking about, which is we're at point A, B, or C and we're going to X, Y, or Z. And that can be about anything. Um, at this point, you know, a few months into it, I'm I'm really excited about the caliber of the guest, the quality of the conversation, the feedback totally. that I'm getting. And the insight is, regardless of how much content there is out there, what people really enjoy, and I've talked about authenticity and branding for 20 plus years and values-led leadership for 20 plus years. These are buzzwords now, but when they're ingrained in you, I mean, people care. People want to listen. It's Absolutely. it's inspiring and, and it's innovative. And it's yes. very nature. You're getting innovation in real time. So that would be my, those were my few takeaways. Right. And I will uh, share the the other secret is that, yes, it does take a long time to put this uh, these episodes together. And also, um, I started when Women Innovation for the purpose-driven reasons, but also because I wanted to ask women like yourself all these questions that I had stored in the back of my head. So <laughs> that's the real objective or KPI. I like it. I like it. I like it. That's what we should be doing. It's right. doing our passions. Right. And so since you uh, talk about the future of XYZ, I would love to end the episode by asking you our own innovation and futuristic question. So that is, where do you see yourself and your industry in one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? Holy cow. The, I mean, in a, in a world that has been completely turned upside down this past you know, year, uh, it is tricky to predict. However, one month from now feels manageable. One month from now, I 
I think I'm in a very similar place as I am now. Maybe I've gotten to travel a little bit more. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, you know, maybe the weather is starting to get a little bit better again. I don't know. But no, the, the answer is I'm working with great clients from the big to the small and really helping them figure out the positioning and go to market strategy for their brands that get them to the next level and help them achieve the goals that they they have that that XYZ destination point. So that's one month from now. One year from now, I think a lot of it will depend on the macroeconomic climate of our country and of our world and the geopolitics that play into that. And that's because I am highly sensitive to both of those things as an ex-poli-sci and an international business person. Where we are as a world and where my industry is, meaning the consulting slash conscious capitalism space, um, I think will be conscious capitalism is moving forward. That is the great thing. Consumers are demanding it. I do not think the blinders are going back on anytime soon. And I think there will only be more and more opportunity ahead for that. What is happening in the world will depend on what's happening geopolitically and economically in terms of real opportunity in the day to day. And then that one-year trajectory will impact the 10-year trajectory. In 10 years, however, what I can say I hope for is that ESG investing is the norm, that governance from government and from corporations mandates uh, some level of commitment to social and environmental standards. I hope that we are measuring success differently than we were even just six or eight months ago. And I really, 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 truly hope that the move that we are seeing in, call it DEI or call it as, uh, you know, Marianne Howland, who is a recent guest on Future of XYZ, says is JEDI, so justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, that this is no longer a quote unquote movement or an initiative because it's not, it's fundamental. It is fundamental to humanity. And I think in 10 years, I would really, really love to see innovation, not as a silo, but integrated into an organization. And I would like to see Jedi as no longer a topic of conversation, but we're much more integrated. And that we as a human species are acknowledging and recognizing our interconnectedness, our uh, interdependence and our innate being as one. And that would be my my hope in 10 years. So I don't know if we'll get there, but that is my hope. I love that. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's been a real pleasure having you on, Lisa. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.